You're listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. Nineteen sixty eight was a year of harsh images, the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Senator Robert Kennedy, and the decision of President Johnson not to run for another term. To many it was also the year when Americans began to distrust their government. A major contributor to this sentiment was the rising anger and growing unease about the Vietnam War, which was crystallized by the Tet Offensive and the Battle in Hue. To discuss this, we are joined by journalist Mark Bowden, who is also the author of thirteen books, including Black Hawk Down and Guest of the Ayatollah, which in my view is a must-read to understand the dynamics of the Iranian and U.S. relations. And now let's discuss his bestseller, Way 1968. Welcome. Great to have you with us. Thank you, Jim. What made you focus on this battle? Because you had not written a series of battle books. Right. I don't think of myself as a military reporter. But what I do like is to try and dig into a big story by finding a single dramatic episode. And that's true of Black Hawk Down, which really tells the story of the American involvement in Somalia uh, through one very dramatic episode, this 18-hour-long battle. And I think Quay afforded me a similar opportunity to investigate and write about the war in Vietnam through the lens of this one very bloody, protracted battle during the Tet Offensive. How many interviews did you do? Because you interviewed people really from representing all sides. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I worked on this book for six years. I started interviewing American veterans and tried to keep a pace of three or four in-depth interviews a week over a period of four, five, six years. And then I made two trips to Vietnam. I did roughly 60 in-depth interviews with civilians and combatants and people who fought also for the South Vietnamese Army, some for the North Vietnamese Army, some from the Viet Cong. I haven't added them all up, but I know that it numbers more than 100, but all were people who were right in the middle of this. How did you identify those people in Vietnam? Well, the American veterans were fairly easy to find because the units who were involved now have websites. You go to their websites and they have like rosters of guys. And once you make contact with just even one or two people from a particular unit, I always ask the question, who else was there with you or who else should I talk to? And these guys all know each other. So in short order, I had long lists of American veterans of the battle that ultimately I couldn't even interview all the people on those lists. In Vietnam, I hired a fellow named Ho Dang Hoa, who's a retired military officer. He also worked with Ken Burns on his documentary about the Vietnam War. And Hoa, who is, as I said, a veteran, knows his way around the military, the veterans organizations in Vietnam, and was able to find for me people who fought in Hue. And then we went to Hue, and we looked for people who were in the city during this month long battle who had memories of it. You know, Hua had done some preliminary work, so he's really the one who found and steered me to the right people. Let's talk for a minute about General William Westmoreland, who commanded U.S. forces from 1964 to 1968, basically was removed from his command because of the false reporting that he gave to the administration or received after the Battle of Hue. Well, General Westmoreland, uh, who I knew almost nothing about, 
before I started to investigate this battle really shocked me as someone who refused to believe the truth about what was happening. He had a theory about the capability of the enemy, and he had fairly consistently argued that the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese Army were not capable of any large-scale attacks in anywhere other than the furthest, most distant perimeter of the areas of the country. Of course, when the Tet Offensive came, every major city and town in South Vietnam was attacked simultaneously. The city of Hue, which was the third largest in South Vietnam, was completely taken. So clearly, General Westmoreland did not understand the battlefield that he was responsible for. And I think that can happen to any general. I mean, the enemy is smart. They are capable of surprising even a very capable commander. But when the city of Hue was taken by 10,000 enemy forces, General Westmoreland persisted in arguing not just to the press, but to the White House and to the Joint Chiefs of Staff that there were no more than 500 or so enemy troops in Hue and that they would readily be defeated and that there was no real significant battle being fought there when there was, and even his own commanders on the ground were telling him the opposite. And a lot of the reports that were getting to the American public came from journalists. The full title of your book is Hue 1968, A Turning Point of the American War in Vietnam. Journalism played a key role in that, didn't it? It did, and it was one of the things that I was particularly interested in studying because I am a journalist and, you know, I had long heard the story that journalists undermine, you know, the American war effort. So I was interested to see exactly what the reporting was from Hue and how it compared with the official version of events. And what I found was that there were many reporters who went to the scene in Hue who filed very accurate stories from day one who were contradicting in just about every line they wrote the official version of events in Saigon and in uh, Phu Bai. Clearly, the journalism done during the Battle of Hue was far more accurate than the official version of events. And, you know, as a journalist myself, I have deep admiration for the skill and the courage of the reporters who went into this battle and basically reported alongside the men who were fighting it. And Walter Cronkite played a key role. Didn't he do a documentary? He did. Walter Cronkite, of course, was the CBS anchorman, and he was, I think, both surprised and also felt betrayed by the Tet Offensive because he had been reporting the official line, which was how well the war was going in Vietnam. When the Tet Offensive happened, when the city of Hue was taken, this directly contradicted the official line. So he went to Vietnam over the objections of his bosses, who didn't want to lose their famous anchorman, but he investigated it for himself, interviewed General Westmoreland, who assured him that there was nothing significant going on in Hue, and then went to Hue, landed in the middle of one of the largest pitched battles that he'd ever witnessed. And he had covered World War II with troops going across Europe. So he came back to the United States and he told the truth. He gave a special report to the American people saying that the war was not going well, that at best it was a stalemate, and that the best that we can hope for as Americans is to honorably find a way to bring it to an end. And he had a reach and legitimacy that you don't really see in today's media. Yeah, and I mean, at the time, there were three channels on the television set, and, you know, Walter Cronkite was the dean of Anchorman. He was someone whose reports, his voice, was like the voice of God. I mean, the American people listened to Walter Cronkite, and I think he played a major role in shifting the debate in this country from how do we win this war to how do we get out of this war. Let's go to 2017. Right now, there's so much rhetoric about North Korea, and you wrote what I think really is a seminal article for The Atlantic earlier this year about North Korea. What are our options? 
Well, what I, I did was interview military commanders who have commanded troops in Korea and regional experts from the State Department, from the National Security Council, people who have spent years wrestling with this problem. And I essentially outlined the five military options that we have. One would be to attack and take out the government of North Korea and defeat its armies and sort of a massive first strike. Another would be just to take out Kim Jong-un. Another would be to sort of a stepped series of attacks that would gradually ramp up military pressure and on and on. Each of those military options I explored in depth with the people who would be responsible for planning and carrying them out. And it turns out that none are viable options. And the big reason why they're not is that any attack on North Korea would result almost certainly in the deaths of millions of South Koreans. And that's just because the city of Seoul, a city of 25 million people, is only 50 miles from the demilitarized zone where the North Koreans have thousands of artillery batteries that would level the city of Seoul in the first day of any kind of conflict. The cost of starting a war, which is what President Trump has threatened to do, would be enormous. I mean, we're talking about one of the greatest, potentially one of the greatest tragedies in human history. And then, you know, if you examine the prospect of which I consider to be fantastical, that we could somehow take out Kim Jong-un and the North Korean government without them responding in any way. And then you would be left with this enormous catastrophe of a stateless North Korea. And the United States would have to bear the responsibility for stepping in and trying to organize a humanitarian aid on the border of China which would not particularly like American troops in North Korea or Russia, which is on the northern border. You would have factions, loyalists, who are supportive of the Kim Jong-un dynasty in remote areas of the country, likely armed with chemical and biological weapons, nuclear material. It would be, even in the best case scenario, one of the most disastrous things. But, but you things. see the fact that they have nuclear weapons and perhaps later their ability to hit the United States. Is yeah, a risk it, for us? It, it is a risk. It's not a different risk. In fact, it's substantially less of a risk than we faced throughout the Cold War. The calculus was the thousands of nuclear-tipped ICBMs that the Soviet Union had would not be used because they would be destroyed if they started that war, just as we would be destroyed. We called that mutually assured destruction. In the case of North Korea, it would simply be assured destruction because as terrible as it might be, for North Korea to hit an American city with a nuclear weapon, it would not destroy the United States of America, we would but, retaliate. It, but it would destroy North Korea. Mark, I want to thank you for joining us. Again, congratulations, Huey, 1968. It's really a remarkable book. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com. <laughs>